Welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cover, and for people that are working and living with animals, this is our passion. So let's explore it together. We mostly talk about training, but also genetics, physiology, husbandry, philosophy, enrichment, and more. We chase some serious rabbits into their burrows. So buckle your seatbelts and let's take a ride. Tonight, I'd like to talk about a subject that may be a little bit sensitive for a lot of trainers, but I hope you'll bear with me because I think we need to open up this discussion and open our minds. And lately I've been hearing a lot of trainers lamenting about clients that don't do their homework. Their dogs are trained, theoretically, and returned to the owners. A lot of times the trainers are doing in-home training sessions and they leave the client's homework to do in between sessions. And when the trainer returns, they find that either the training has not persisted or it has not advanced with the dog over the, let's say usually maybe a week that has passed. And there's another practice that I think we need to re-examine. And that is the practice of taking histories. And I think both of these things may be largely overrated and unnecessary. So hear me out. If we look at histories and homework, and we invest time and effort in taking that information, what is the purpose of that? And I would say that the purpose is to safely and effectively train the quote unquote dog that is in front of us. There are many trainers that will say with pride that I train the dog in front of me. I take something from this system and something from that system because each dog is different. What if all animals do basically learn alike? And what if almost all animals can effectively self-manage? What if we could use the same techniques for every single animal that comes in front of us? And what if by teaching the animal directly, we simply didn't need to involve the owners in the direct teaching or training? 
So think about it for a moment. The reason, the reason you have a job is because the owner isn't a trainer. And they don't necessarily want to become a trainer. They don't necessarily have the time and the energy and the you know, logistical wherewithal to be trainers. They already have a very busy, very full lifestyle. And it's all they can do to cope with their dog. I mean, would you think that it was reasonable for your doctor to tell you that you didn't do your homework on your surgery after you left the office, that you didn't maintain your stitches well enough, that you didn't take your stitches out, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I, I don't think that any of us expect to have to do the expert things that medical staff do after we leave their office. We come back to their office if we need help with those things. And I think with training, it can and should be very similar. So here's why I think that. I've worked with a lot of animals from shelters and I've worked with a lot of exotic animals. And with these animals, a lot of times there isn't any history or much of a history. And yet, the success with these animals is, in my experience, just about exactly the same as it is with the animals that I can get a history on. And uh, for example, uh, one of my favorite story, right? Wood Green Animal Shelters, 29 animals that were slated for euthanasia. And you, know, you don't really know what the history is. The people that turn the animals in may not understand what happened with the animal. They may not tell the truth about it. They may not be the only owner. You know, there's just so much that is unknown with a shelter animal. And even within the shelter, different people will report different things about the animal. Um, there was a really tragic thing that happened Fortunately, nobody died, but somebody was severely mauled where a shelter had determined that an animal might be a high-risk animal that couldn't be certain. And they asked the staff to report anything uh, that wasn't quite right about this particular dog. And one of the staff members who had many years of experience had a belief that all dogs were good. And the only reason dogs had problems was because of people. And this person was putting this dog back in a kennel after a walk. 
and the dog refused to go in. And she read this as, you know, like a little bit of fear or reticence to go in versus, you know, maybe a challenge, like I don't have to go in. So she lowered her profile, went down on the ground and goes to um, encourage him to go in, at which point he came up her shoulder and silently grabbed her and started mauling her seriously, like really, really harmed her. And she didn't do anything in particular to cause this, except for possibly being more vulnerable, possibly persisting in asking this dog to do something that he would prefer not to. Now, as a matter of fact, it was one of two cases that um, happened that particular year in, in kind of a similar situation. So this person didn't know the full history, but also didn't report on this dog who they found out personally was very dangerous. So the, the point of all this is that even when the people reporting are professionals, they may not say everything that needs to be known. Okay, now let's take it to a different um, situation where maybe everybody does say exactly the truth about the dog and its history. And yet that history can be so different with different people. Uh, it's not that the history can be so different, the dog can be so different. Wait, you say, you just said to consider if maybe all dogs can be trained with the same technique. Yes, but how we apply that technique can make important differences. I was in a client's home and they actually weren't my client. I was uh, taking care of them for another trainer who had fallen ill. And the problem was resource guarding. And like many animals, the resource guarding of this dog was some kind was kind of precipitated perhaps by an internal desire for conflict, for possession, for excitement. And we I was explaining to the owners how they could talk to and work around their dog to minimize conflicts. And of course, one of the major things that I, you know, explain to them is name and explain, where you literally explain what is going on to your dog, what you are doing, what is around you, what is happening, where you're going, who else is there, etc. However, it's not enough 
to do, or it's not maximally effective to say what is. We need to go another step forward and say what we anticipate will be. And so this dog had come up right next to my foot and she was chewing on, you know, one of those like Nyla bones or something like that, some kind of a bone toy. And I explained that if you're going to do anything unpredictable, if you're going to introduce uncertainty to the dog, that it's really safest to generally, for most dogs, to explain what you're going to do and how you're going to be changing things. So one of these is if you're going to bend down in front of another animal, I always tell them, I'm going to reach down to the floor. I'm going to, in this case, pick up your bone. And so um, I said exactly that to the dog. And of course, I'm going to use bridges. Okay, I'm going to reach down. Good, 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 good. And I'm going to pick up your bone. Good, 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 good. And I picked up the bone and I stood up. So I'm trying to show them that, you know, in the same way that we tell people, don't mess with your dog when he's eating. Let your dog eat in peace. You know, don't irritate a dog when there's food that he's trying to eat right there involved. And similarly, if you're going to need to do something erratic, explain it to the dog ahead of time and bridge it so that that dog knows that this is exactly what we were just saying. So when the dog didn't do anything, I was the one that was changing and I bridged my own behavior. I'm going to lean down. Good, 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 good. And I've got your bone. Good, 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 good. Very good. And now um, can I toss your bone over there and you can have it again. And the dog looks with interest. And I look at the owners and the owners are like this. And I said, is this unexpected? And they're like, yeah. They couldn't believe that their dog let me just pick up the bone and it was no issue. So what does that tell us about this dog resource guarding? It may be that the dog thought it was totally rude and unreasonable for the people to take its bone. Go get your own bone. And if you were walking down the street with your wallet and I came up and suddenly grabbed your wallet, you might be a little aggressive toward me. But if I said, I need to pick your wallet up because it fell down by your foot, good, 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 and hand it to you, that's different, right? I'm sorry. I see your wallet is sticking out there. I need to take it. Good, good, good. I need to take it and I'm going to give it right back to you. All these things may make a difference. It's a little different because your wallet is usually in your pocket or your bag and not out there 
where it could easily be picked up, but I hope you get the point. So with this dog, when I simply presented things differently, there was no problem at all. I cannot tell you how many times that happens. Now, I come from a background of working with exotic animals. They're all resource guarders. They're all much, much more reactive than even the most difficult dogs that I usually see. Now, they learn to be different. Um, even animals like gorillas, if you are working with a gorilla and you make direct eye contact, a lot of times that, especially a male gorilla, will just hit the wall right in front of you, you know, hit the glass and punish you, you know, tell you off because you were staring at him. And yet, if I take those same gorillas and I've got something to show them and I show them like my pen and then I show them how it works. Look, this is what it does. Can you do this? Do you want to do this? And pen, you know, not going to hand a gorilla pen normally. But um, let me pick a different example. This is an actual example. I was at a zoo and we were teaching gorillas about objects and classes of objects. So I had a bunch of spoons and forks and some of the spoons were metal and some were plastic and some of the forks were metal and some of the forks were plastic. So I was able to show them this is a spoon, this is a spoon, this is a metal spoon, this is a plastic spoon, this is a fork, this is a fork, this is a metal fork, this is a plastic fork. Can you show me the spoon? Good. Can you show me the fork? Good. Can you show me something metal? Good. Can you show me something plastic? Good. Now the animals are engaged. They're interested. You know, they hear us talking and they wonder, you know, I get some of the words like food and uh, go inside and so on, but what else are these people talking about, they don't really make much sense. And then as we teach them vocabulary, all of a sudden they're going, oh, that's what they're talking about. Oh, well, why do I care if it's metal or paper or plastic or whatever? But they're still interested. They're interested in learning about us and our customs in a way that's very similar to us learning about them. And all of a sudden, the gorillas are in rapt attention for the task. And the gorilla will look up at me to the side like so. And then back down at the task and do it. And then kind of present it, you know, like, is this it? Yes, that's it. That's, you know, you picked a metal spoon. You picked a plastic spoon. Now, here are some other objects. Can you show us which one is metal? Can you show us which group has metal and plastic? Can you show us which group has only plastic, etc.? Now, you might think, well, why does a gorilla care about if something is plastic? 
Why does he even care if it's a spoon or a fork? They don't use spoons or forks. All things being equal, everybody enjoys learning. They, I mean, it's just like going to another country. They're interested in learning about us, in learning about how our life compares to theirs, just like we're interested in them. So my point is that not only can these animals learn very quickly and learn the same kinds of things that we learn, but they can be very interested and uh, for reasons that we might not normally expect. And as they become interested and more engaged, the rules change. All of a sudden, it's okay to look at one another. Not in a way that would be rude, not staring, but a gentle glance, a gentle eye contact to establish, you know, um, understanding. Like, yes, that was correct. So, the process that we use with each animal can be much more important than the history. If you assume that everybody is naturally going to be offended by staring, I mean, come on, your mom told you it's impolite to stare, right? And we know that if, you know, a prolonged stare can be very offensive to a dog. Well, it's not just dogs, baboons will really react. And other animals react to stares, maybe not with aggression, but with fear and avoidance. I guarantee you, you take a pair of binoculars or a gun or a slingshot and stare at a bird, they're gonna clear the area. They're very, very aware of us looking at them with focused attention. And it's pretty universally considered impolite by all the wild animals that I interact with. And um, it's a privilege that we earn. So I don't need a history to tell me that this animal responds badly to being stared at or that it responds badly to me taking its food items or any item that it values or that the animal feels like he should have a right to keep what he has possession of and that he may agree to let me take it, but that's a process. And that's a process that we do with animals all the time. You take all these working dogs that love to hang on a tuck, and yet we can teach them to cooperate with us and oust or out off of that tug it just immediately upon our request. But if you try to just pull the dog off of it, you're going to get a different response. So a history 
I mean, it's a great idea, but in so many cases, in my experience, I could not get a history anyway. Excuse me, one second. And so I had to go in with a second strategy, which was to assume that all animals had these issues and to train in such a way that we sidestep these issues and that we handle things so respectfully that we didn't have any problems until that point where our relationship had developed and there were no problems, that we could take their food. So I have a dog and um, uh, I have one dog that I have not been able to train the way I have trained every other animal I've ever owned and most of the animals I've seen. I think this dog has a form of autism. He's a good dog, but he is, he's got certain behavior limitations that I haven't been able to totally change. And he acts like he has triggers that start physiological responses that he loses the ability to change. And yet this dog will let me put my hand in his food bowl and he'll eat it all around my fingers. And initially it was hard for him to let me do a hard exam of his body. You know, where you're like, I've got to take that tick off you. Or let me see what this little scratch is. Or can I look in your ear? Or that kind of thing. And uh, yet he let us do whatever we needed to do when we proceeded by a certain set of rules. Now, he isn't self-managing to the extent that I found most animals are. So let me take us back to what we were originally talking about, the need for histories and homework. And I have been presenting the case right now that histories have a really limited relevance. I mean, I think it's great, but people will go and spend an hour taking down all the notes about a dog and why he reacts and what he reacts to and so on and so forth. And that still doesn't guarantee that they're going to have the critical knowledge that they need. Whereas with wild exam wild or exotic animals and with shelter animals, where I just assume they're going to have every problem, then I can very easily and efficiently train around those problems. And we've been able to lead other people to do that as well. I remember a couple of years ago, a lady who was a grandmother and she'd adopted 
a dog from a shelter. She really loved this dog, but he was a terrible resource guarder. And she had grandchildren. So she was rightly very concerned. But by going through a systematic way of presenting information to him, explaining what was expected, and developing his ability to do what was expected, and to um, also, in his case, retreat so that if you're not feeling like you're up to this challenge, you have another option, which is to retreat. And she was able to bring her dog to the point where he was safe with her grandchildren. Fantastic. And why did she do this? Because she couldn't find a trainer to work with that could effectively help her with her dog. So this is a case where a, an owner did do the homework. They did the homework of the trainer. She took a class for professional trainers and um, successfully did everything she needed to do. Obviously, that wouldn't be good for our business in general, right? If instead of training the dogs, we trained the owners and they all turned into excellent dog trainers that didn't need us anymore. So what is the more normal situation? The more normal situation is for me, I don't train the owners in general. I train the dog. And I'm looking to get the dog to a certain stage of ability and development. And I call it the fifth milestone. And the fifth milestone is where the animal understands what I want, has learned how to produce what I want, and then decides to align their purpose with mine. Now we see this all the time. You go out and you work with you know, herding dogs. You don't have to talk them into herding a sheep or a cattle or even your children. They are all about that. Uh, protection sports dogs are naturally protective and they're naturally energetic and they're naturally willing to exert themselves to guard things and so on. Dogs love to use their noses for detection. They're excellent at it. They're passionate about it. We don't have to talk them into any of those things. So here's the crux of it. How do you get a dog to be passionate about having safe, appropriate behavior? Because when the dog aligns with your purpose, you don't need to give the owners homework. And here's how I know that. Remember the case at Woodgreen? They took these 29 animals, which included a goat and a horse, and solved their behavior problems and taught them basic on and off lead obedience. And in the case of the horse, also how to get her feet worked on and how to be groomed and how to load onto and off of a horse trailer and ride on it. 
And that took for 27 of the dogs, 15 hours or less of total training time. And for the last two animals, it took 30 hours or less of total training time. And all these animals were adopted within one week of completing their training. And not one of these animals was returned in two years. No returns in two years to the extent that I was just, I, I was just going nuts. I wanted to be sure what happened with these dogs. Because even though these dogs were trained and rehabilitated using the techniques that I have developed and that I teach, I did not do the training. The certified trainers that they had on staff did that training. And I didn't control the adoptions. The shelter controlled the adoptions. And they decided not to teach the owners anything about how we help these animals change their behavior. The people didn't know any of the things that I tell you guys all about that are so important and so powerful in producing animals that are successful in dealing with life with humans. They didn't know about name and explain, bridging, condition relaxation, doing cycles. They didn't know about any of those things. And yet, they had 100% success. And guess what? I don't know if I mentioned this part, but all of these animals had already been through other programs. In fact, every other thing that the shelter knew to try with them, and they had all failed. Um, some of the animals, like the horse, had been in the shelter system for up to three years. And finally, the shelter just decided, hey, you know, we are just never going to be able to find a good home. It's not in anybody's best interest for this animal to live out its life in the stressful shelter environment and thereby taking space that could go to 10 other animals that could be successfully adopted. So we're going to euthanize them. But instead, because one of the people that had gotten certified, or a group of them, I guess, went to the hierarchy at the shelter and said, could we try this technique called SATS? So they did. And they trained all these animals, and they got them adopted, and every single one was successful. And as you know, I talked to the owner of the horse uh, about a year and a half ago, and it had been about 15 years. And that horse is still doing great. This horse that nobody could get to do anything right is doing great. So I'm going to tell you that I find it true that animals all have unique personalities. And, you know, they do different things really well. They have different sensitivities. 
but they all basically train the same way. And here's what I mean. If you remember when I spoke at the IACP conference, I didn't bring a demo dog and I didn't select dogs from the audience to be my demo animals. I offered any and everybody there the chance to experience this kind of training. And we went through and taught every animal the bridge, every animal they got presented, the bridges and the target. We did at least five, I think it was more like seven different dogs. And it takes two minutes or less to teach the bridges, the targets, and a recall um, from up to 100 feet away. And then we can teach body parts and so on and so forth. And it goes that quickly, not with one animal, not with a certain kind of animal that does well with this technique, but with every single animal. And guess what? It doesn't matter what kind. I taught the same thing to a bunch of camels. And uh, this is a little bit different because instead of targeting them mainly for recall, we were targeting them to line their hip and shoulders up at a fence interface so that they could get a shot or so, you know, something like that. It took about two minutes per animal. There were four camels. It just went lickety split, lickety split. Giraffes, same thing. I've heard a bunch of people saying you cannot target the shoulder of a giraffe. Well, I gotta admit, it's hard to get up to the shoulder of a giraffe. But if you don't know this, a lot of places that have giraffes will have a little station where you can climb up and be at the shoulder height of a giraffe. And if you find a way, either by extending your reach, by using a target pole, or raising yourself so you're up in the area of the shoulder, you can teach a giraffe to sh target their sh shoulder in the same 30 seconds to two minutes. Now, I'm not going to say there's never going to be an animal that will not learn or that will not cooperate, but this is the norm. Shoot, once you really get used to doing this, I remember in Australia uh, training a bunch of, with some kind of pig. Anyway, there were um, three pigs in the area and I started them all at once because we just don't have very much time when I'm working at a zoo and there's so many animals. And if I can just introduce them to the basics, then their professional staff can keep going. Once the animal understands, you know, the basic system, I mean, it's amazing what they can get done together. So, I do train all animals the same. And what that means is I present the same logical steps in essentially the same way. And I treat all the animals the same. I invite them to um, work with me. 
I explain what I'm going to do wherever possible. I demonstrate. I ask them if they can do it rather than telling them to do it. And I give them feedback that lets them know how close they're coming to perfection. And we have virtually errorless learning and very, very little conflict or anything like that. And uh, I'll go ahead and talk about the um, situations where it's not quote unquote perfect. So I have a horse and she's 32 years old. And most horses are retired from most things in their early 20s. A horse that gets up to 20 years old is considered a senior horse. I was at a holiday event with a bunch of horse owners a couple of days ago, and we were talking about our horses. And I mentioned that my horse is now 32 and a half years old. And I got applause because that's really old for a horse. And my horse is still working. Now she's not working the same way that she used to. She used to, and she still does trot up to me much of the time, but you know, she used to just gallop up to me. She did, couldn't wait to get started training. And we did so many things. This horse knows over 500 words and concepts when I tested it. And um, she can tell you if she wants a blanket or, you know, whatever she wants. And she has privilege. If she doesn't want to work, she doesn't have to work. Now, there are things that she must do. She must be polite. She must be safe. She must be responsible around others. Um, if I need her to go with me, she's required to lead safely and respectfully, which she does. She always helps me to put her halter on. But if I ask her to you know, show me what, what kind of, like she names a lot of things for me. And if she doesn't want to do that, she doesn't have to. If she doesn't want to do movement exercises, she doesn't have to. And I saw that that caused a lot of um, cognitive dissonance for a bunch of dog trainers. Because dog trainers seem to have a more universal sense that whatever I tell you to do, you better do it and do it now. Or else I'm not a trainer. And with exotics, it's a little different. Because even if I can make an animal do whatever I want them to do, there's still a cost to be paid. If the animal is stressed, he's likely to get ill or he's likely to get so upset that something bad happens. And it may not happen to me. If I make an animal angry or upset, 
he may not take it out on me. He may take it out on one of the less able animals that he lives with. You know, the whole saying, go home and kick the dog. I don't want to cause that. So I work on inspiring the animals to want to work with me. And so if you go to cinelia.com slash press, you'll see a video of a rhino working with me. I just met that rhino. He has no reason to do anything I tell him to. He could do anything he wants to. And he stays right there with me and agrees to let me put a little syringe tube in the opening into the abscess under his horn so that his keepers can treat his abscess for him. They hadn't been able to do it for eight months. We did it in a single session. And right under that, there's a video of a little wolf and that wolf learned 40 things in two hours. And there was another wolf and he learned a lot of things and they didn't have to do anything. They were totally free to go wherever they wanted to. And they wanted to stay right there and interact with us. And yes, we did use, in the case of the wolf, I think it was uh, cheese, but they still want to stay and interact. They're interested in learning. I was at the stable and we were evaluating a horse that was um, being put up for adoption. And so I went out with the um, one of the owners and I asked this horse to learn a few things and see how she interacted, what was she like um, to be with and so forth. And this little horse did just a beautiful job. But there were two other horses with her and they wanted to do it too. So we did all three horses and all three horses were identifying things within minutes. And the owner of the stable goes, that's amazing. How did they know to do that? And she had just watched the entire process and she caught herself and she goes, whoa, it happens so quickly, so easily, because it's not about us imposing things on the animal. It's about us intriguing the animal and showing them what we're trying to do and why. So that they then get interested in doing that. Like, it's not, why do I have to do this just because you say it? Instead, it is. Is it possible for me to do this? Can I do it exactly that way? Because we remove all issues of coercion. You don't have to do it. I mostly don't have leads on animals when I'm working. So every once in a while, I will, especially as my horse has gotten older, she has a tendency to, um, <laughs> now, now that she's in her 30s, it's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I think I've done this before, Casey. I'll see you later. I'm going to go eat. Wait, come back, come back. I always tell her, you rascal. But in everything important, she is a model 
animal. So much so that at the stable, they could ask her, will you just go back to your stall? And she could walk herself back to the stall and go right back in by herself. And similarly, in the morning, they just let her out. And she'd go out to um, the pasture that she was supposed to be in. And if she got, if she was out of the pasture, I could ask her, can you just stay right in this area? I remember I was doing a certification seminar on site at the stable. And I let my horse, who was there to demonstrate how we did certain things, but she had a lot of off time. And so I let her just graze on the grass right out in front of what we were doing, you know, where we were meeting. And I just asked her, can you please stay in this area? And she did. She did. And I didn't have to go out and, you know, force her to do it or pay her. I mean, she's kind of getting paid because she gets to eat grass there, right? But there was plenty of other grass and other places to go. And all things being equal, she likes to go wherever she wants to, right? Okay, so let's tie this together. I think it's a good idea to take histories. When I take a history, the biggest thing I want to know is what is the problem? When does it present? Is the animal predictable? If the animal is predictable, even if they're severe, I can usually enjoy watching them systematically correct and become successful. If the animal isn't predictable, that is a red flag because it often means that the animal cannot manage that, cannot control it. For example, if an animal has um, epilepsy, has seizures, animal could bite somebody and it's not under his control. If he has autism, he can have meltdowns. That's what my dog does. And it's not under his control. As one of my respected colleagues who has severe autism has explained to me that having an autistic meltdown is similar to having a seizure. You can tell it's happening. And after a certain point, there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to let it run its course. And in her particular case, running its course was often either her taking off running and not knowing where she was going or where she ended up, or her collapsing to the ground and hitting herself, which she didn't want to do either one of those things. And she didn't understand why she did either one of those things, but she lost the ability to decide what she did once she got to a certain point. So we, I like to collect that information and most of the rest of it, I don't even worry about because even if I wanted to collect all that information, I've had so many cases where I couldn't 
and I saw it did not make any difference at all. Instead, I proceed as if every dog is a high-risk dog. And I tell them what I'm going to do, and I work over a barrier, and I ask permission, and I can start, um, for example, feeding in a bowl instead of by hand so that I take away the opportunity for the animal to fail by nipping my fingers, etc. And not the same issue, but related, I no longer try to give clients homework with the exception of people that are um, in classes that I give that have signed up to do the homework. What I find instead is if I teach an animal and develop them to the point where they are engaged with the process and they've aligned their purpose with mine, that animal becomes self-managing. So here's an example of a self-managing animal. I say to the dog, if you can stay easy, I can let you watch out the window. I'll open the drapes. This is for a dog that previously would bark his head off at anything that came to the window or the door. And the dog turns around, lies down, gets easy. I open the window and the dog stays easy no matter what goes on. Dogs that have bark like crazy at the mailman. If you want the mailman to keep coming, you need to be easy. If you want the mailman to leave, you can bark. Dog already has a history of barking at the mailman. That would be easy to repeat. And I use the word easy to repeat, and I'm also using easy as a cue. And for me, easy means the animal attains self-relaxation. So the animal has a history of getting of arousal around mailman. But when I tell him that I will keep the mailman coming if he gets himself easy, he does that. And it's amazing. These dogs will sometimes turn themselves inside out to be easy. Now, what's the alternative? The alternative, if I don't get that animal engaged in driving his own performance to the level of excellence that we all want it to be at, the alternative is that that dog must always be on an e-collar or always be on a lead. If you let them off a lead or didn't have an e-collar on, you're always kind of taking a gamble. But if you have proved the behavior and demonstrated that this animal is 99% reliable under all these conditions, which exceed the conditions that you're normally going to encounter in real life, and there's no external correction or reinforcement required, you have a trained animal there or an educated animal. It's really more the way I look at it. Uh, my mother taught me you know, certain traits 
about honesty, compassion, hard work, and so forth. My mother doesn't have to tell me what to do now. I internalized her teachings and I drive myself to try to attain the standards that my mother and father taught me to have. That some of my bosses that have inspired me, I try to continue to work in ways that they taught me to value and appreciate. And it can be the same way with animals, with all animals. So I'm suggesting that we trade in the histories and the homework for a careful um, respectful, efficient, well-designed way of teaching animals and a proofing so that we know that we've attained what we set out to. And we do this because, or we're able to do this because we engage the animal to align with our standards and they're the ones driving the behavior forward. And I then become their assistant. I carry the treats. I give them the feedback. I keep the time. I'm their coach. I'm not their authority figure. I mean, it could be. If I needed to, I can hold my own. But that's not the job I want to have. I want to have the job of empowering this brilliant, capable, intelligent being to be successful in his dealings with humans. I don't need to be his authority figure. And my final word on that is some people believe that you have to dominate an animal to teach it. Can you imagine if I tried to dominate rhinos, even pigs, sea lions, lions, tigers. I wouldn't train anything. I don't dominate anything. Instead, I share with them information that's relevant to them. And for that reason, I am useful and helpful to them. All right. So I hope you'll consider that because our clients need us and we need them to need us. If we train more effectively, they don't need to do their homework. I'll say one last thing about that. I have a little manual called Sats and the Family Doc and it's critical skills for daily living. And Sue Ketland at Wood Green Animal Shelters um, helped to develop it. She came up with a list of what behaviors dogs needed to be successful at in order to be successful in homes. And a colleague that I highly respect, Heather Beck, looked at the book and said, if all the dogs knew these things, then they wouldn't have any problems. So she kind of corroborated exactly what Sue had come up with. 
which I thought was really interesting because I would have picked some slightly different behaviors. Anyway, there's about 15 behaviors uh, or concepts in that little manual. And it took us two mornings. And if we really cut it down, one and a half hours over three sessions. So a total of four and a half hours to teach everything in that little manual. And people that have followed that manual for their basic classes for pet dogs have traded their six or eight week obedience class for what's in that little manual. And then what they do, they don't have to spend all this time drilling, drilling, drilling for recalls because we're going at it a different way. And their six-week obedience class can become a two- or three-week basic living skill class. And then you can spend the rest of the time doing fun stuff like find everybody in the family by name. Um tracking body parts. I mean, there's all kinds of great things, different kinds of targets, turning different circles. There's lots of fun things. And people come to trainers to solve problems, but then if they have fun with you and their dog, they are very likely to stay and actually develop hobbies and um, in dreams, they develop their dreams with their dogs and it works for all animals. So if you learn to do training this way, you can train any kind of animal. I've worked with at least 130 species now. Thank you for sharing your time with me. I hope you'll do it again. Take care. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sharing time with me. To help me get the word out, please like, subscribe, share, and most of all, comment. Tell me your thoughts, your experiences, what you'd like to hear about and talk about, and more. So, see you next time, and until then, have wonderful adventures with your animal companions. Take care.